set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and put, have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no gentle or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, lave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeff. I was in my late 20s when I went to college, and while I was in college, I became a student pastor. And so here I am as a late 20-year-old student pastor, and there were some interesting experiences. One that we'll always remember was the very first, one of the very first ones. The first day, Sunday, I turned up there, they said, look, one of the founding members, an older lady, is in hospital. It'd be great if you could go and visit her. So I went and visited her in hospital. You know one of the first things she did? I opened the drawer beside her bed and pulled out this specimen jar and showed me all these stones. I think they were kidney stones or something. I've forgotten. It was a long time ago. I had no clue. what I'd never seen a specimen jar full of kidney stones. I'm not quite sure what I was supposed to do with them or comment on them or say about them. It was an interesting experience. One of the other interesting experiences that I had in those days was I also encountered a younger man. I don't know how old he would have been. I can't remember the stage, 30s, 40s. He was married. And he was having trouble with his wife. His wife just couldn't relate to him, was almost not wanting to have anything to do with him. And he said, she, she, she doesn't want anything to do with me. He doesn't want me to do this or that. 
I've bought her all these things. I go to work and I bought a big, I think he described a big, huge TV that he bought for her. And there was, he listed all these things that he'd bought for all these things that he'd done for her. Now, I had very little experience as a marriage counsel. I was married and had a child at that stage. But it didn't have to be an expert. You'd have to be great to work out. She just wanted him, not all these things that he was doing for her. And one of the great mistakes, oh, thanks, man. One of the great mistakes that we so often make is we think it's all about what we do. It wasn't hard. It's an experience that stayed with me as I've often watched so many Christians think that what being a Christian is about all the things that we do. I was fascinated at that time also. There came a new magazine came out. Some of you may remember it. Most of you probably won't have heard of it. It was called On Being. It called itself On Being because it was wanting to be a, it was a Christian magazine and really what it was saying is it's more important about who we are than what we do because so often we make this emphasis on what we do. Last week I spoke about those three things, pray, love and serve. Last week I talked about the need and one of the basic aspects for us as a Christians is to pray. Today I want to think about, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be Christians, it's all about love. And boy, you gave me a wonderful introduction there, Drew. Did you know what I was going to be preaching? Did you read these sermon notes before I got there, did you? Because <laughs> exactly one of the things it starts with is starting with, because we're talking about love, and so the, one of the class verses passage Jeff read was this one. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds all of them together in perfect unity. You probably don't need to be told that love is one of the central aspects of the Christian life. Love is essential for us as a church. But here's where you were hit the nail on the head earlier. Where does love come from? Did you notice how he, that passage started? It says this. <coughs> Excuse me. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Basically, look. Since then, based on what has gone before, if you don't know it before, go and read the previous chapters. And so often Paul does this in his letters. He starts out by talking about what it means to be a Christian. We are one in Christ, Christ's death, his resurrection. Colossians has got that wonderful passage about him being first born and first been raised and all those sorts of things. Wonderful passage. But as we understand that Christ died for us, how much he loved us, how much he cared for us, we start to understand where that love comes from. If we don't get that message right, we really miss something. The whole section of instructions from Paul is based on the previous chapters on God's love from us. It comes from what Christ has done for us, not what we do for him. We often put the emphasis on what we do. It needs to be on what he has done for us. When we understand and accept what Christ has done for us, when we understand and accept that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, that we have newness of life, as we accept him as our Saviour and Lord, it's then we can start this discussion about love. John put it in his, one of his letters, one of my favourite verses. This is love. Not that we loved God. 
Get that? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's the basis of love. Do you know how we learn to love? Do you know where you learn to love for most of you? Almost for all of us? Your mother and father loved you unconditionally as a kid. That's where love starts, knowing that you're loved. And sadly, that can be one of the problems today. We so often put our, the emphasis on our response to love God and to love others. Yes, that's a great command. It is the great command to love God and to love others. But it starts with the truth and understanding that God is love. In that chapter of 1 John 4, he uses that phrase, God is love, twice. Not once, twice. He wants us to get that message. God is love. And a whole understanding of love needs to come from that understanding that God loves us. It's only as we know and experience that love of God, not just know that love of God, but experience that love of God, that we can love God and love others. You're going to live the Christian life. Know how much you are loved. How deeply God loved you. We use those phrases and talk about his death and resurrection and all that and we make it all pretty. But realise how much it cost him as he poured out his life for us. And when we've grasped that love that God has for us, then our lives are transformed. We're not the same. In the first verses he talks about how we have died we go back to that uh, previous ones. For we, you died and your life is now not your own. Paul describes this transformation of putting to death, of putting off and then putting on. It's like he describes the phrase he uses, and you'll see later on in the passage, he uses it's like we take off all these bad things and put on these new clothes. Clothe yourselves with is the phrase he uses later on in this passage. It's a sense of which we take off, get rid of all these things, put them to death, but then put on these new. It's an inner transformation. And as you notice, as we go through a lot of these different aspects as it talks about them, they're more attitudes than they are things we do, though our attitudes show in the things we do. That makes sense? So it's not so much about what we do, but the attitude that that attitude causes us to do things. It starts with getting rid of so much. Let me read this passage really slowly. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all these such things. Here they are listed. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Wow, what a list. 
A complete extermination of these things is required. Someone put it out, it's not about putting and painting over termite damage. This commentator phrased it, he put it this way, he said, unless the termites are eradicated and damaged boards replaced, the house is doomed. Don't just paint over. Don't just cover it up. We've got to get rid of these and those lists, if you look at the top list, could really be divided and talked about as our sexual sins. The second list could be sins of anger. Now, one of the mistakes we as Christians make, the, the Pharisees did this. They had a list of, when they had a law, they had a list of how that applies. You know what some of the things we sometimes do? We sometimes say, well, when is it okay to lie? When's it okay to get angry? And we almost want to pick with it and define and work out how we can get away with these things. When is it okay to rage? What is filthy language? Can I say this word but not that word? What was... Uh, do you know how we sometimes become legalistic? People do it all the time. When's it okay for sexual legalities and... What's right and what's wrong? Teenagers have gone, but one of the problems we remember as, teen remember as teenagers, we used to think, how far can you go in petting? What do you get to? How we can become extremely legalistic. I suspect if Paul was to write these same words today, if he was to write this letter to the church today, he'd probably use different phrases to those. But you know what? Those same two groupings would probably dominate. And if you think of the sins that cause problems in the world today, those same two groups, sexual sins and sins of anger, they are still problems in the world today. These temptations remain real for all of us. It'll be different aspects that tempt each one of you. Some of you will get caught up in one part, another part, it just varies. We need to acknowledge that we are tempted. One of the words we need to learn to say is no to ourselves. Praise the Lord, we have a God who does forgive. That's not an excuse to keep on doing them saying, well, I know God's going to forgive me. Rather, it's insurance that despite my struggles, he still loves me. His love endures forever. His love never gives up. One thing remains, love. It's one thing to take off the old, but it must go with putting on the new. If you want to get rid of the old, don't just get rid of the old, that won't fully help. What you've got to do is you've got to put on the new. You've got, got to live, live in vacuum, the old will come back so easy. These are the things that we ought to dwell on, the things that we put on. Too often as Christians, we've been known for what we're against rather than what we're for. Now that might be an unfair characterisation, yet that's how many people see Christians today. They can list what Christians are against, usually they're wrong, but that doesn't matter. But they don't see the good things. It needs to be admitted that we as Christians often make more noise about the things we're against than what we're for. 
And you know the things we often speak about and against are often minor issues. What we ought to be known for, well, I'll speak about that a bit later. Let us look then at these verses and dwell on them, the positive ones. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Do you get that? God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. There it is again. This this all comes back to the basis. Putting on these new things is based on we are holy, we are dearly loved. God loves us. He considers us his chosen people. He considers you holy. No one's probably ever called you holy, except if they've called you a holy roller in a negative, disparaging way. You're holy. All those who are in Christ are holy. What a wonderful privilege. Here's what we should clothe ourselves with. Look at this passage again. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with other, one another. Forgive one another. If any of you is a grievance against everyone. Forgive as the Lord forgave. And as we said earlier, and over all these things, put on love which binds us together in perfect unity. Our attitudes towards other people. Having each of these would be much easier if there wasn't other people around. You know, I'm really humble, I'm really gentle and I'm really compassionate when I'm by myself. When it comes with other people, well... You know. In another of his letters, Paul calls these the fruit of the Spirit. They're not a list that we pick and choose. Well, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be gentle, but forget about patience. I haven't got the patience to be patient. No, it's not that. We can't pick and choose. We should exhibit all of these, and they come, as we use that phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Speak of dealing with other people, that leads us to the, third, the next 13 verse. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Any relationship that doesn't involve forgiveness, well, it'll dissolve. Now, that's really evident in marriages. If you've got a good marriage, then you've had to forgive one another once or twice. I'm probably speaking about myself, but I've ne- needed a lot of forgiveness but it's also greatly needed in churches. Churches are full of people who, we have, who are very different from one another. Do you know what in this church, I think we've said before, we all hold different views and different subjects. We've all got different qualities and strengths and attitudes. And sometimes we tread on someone's toes. But we all have that desire to see God's kingdom grow. We might differ on how that happens. I don't need to tell you that there's been disagreements in churches before and there will be disagreements. Forgiveness is needed. Remember how much God forgave you and then you'll be able to forgive. One of the things that fascinates me, I don't know, it's in this, I'm pretty sure it's in this church's constitution. <clears throat> if there's a conflict, the church's constitution will talk about following the teaching of Matthew 18. 
you know Matthew 18. In Matthew 18 is a famous passage which has a whole lot of things about the church, particularly verses 15 to 20. It'll talk about discipline in the church. First go one to another and then if not a couple of people, then the whole church. Did you know what the passage following that is? So you're probably familiar with that passage about church discipline. Do you know what the passage that immediately follows it in, in Jesus' teaching? It's a block of his teaching in chapter 18. It's about the unmerciful servant. And do you know it starts out, Peter says, oh Lord, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? How does Jesus answer? Not seven times. And some people, there's some differences of opinion as to what the answer is. Not seven times, but 70 times seven, or sometimes, say, 77. doesn't really matter. Can you count up to, to the number of times you've had to forgive someone? Once you get to about three, you've forgotten to count. Surely by the time you get to 77, you've really forgotten how to count, so it doesn't matter what that number is. But he then tells the story of the unmerciful servant. Do you know the story of the unmerciful servant? It's a parable. It's a wonderful parable. It's a parable about this guy, and I, I could spend hours telling you, but I'm going to do a really brief summary of it. Re go home and read it in the end of chapter, Matthew chapter 18. And it's a story of this servant who the king's checking his books and discovers that this servant owes him millions of dollars. Brings the servant in, the servant gets down on his knees and begs, Lord, I can't. Look, I've got this wife and all this family at home to look after. I can't pay that. The king says, okay, I'm going to be gracious and merciful. I'll forgive you that debt of millions of dollars. Ah, oh, that servant's really grateful. He walks out of there and he comes across a fellow servant. This fellow servant owes him a hundred bucks. Hey, you, you owe me a hundred bucks. I can't pay it. Look, I've, I've, I've got this family, I've got all these problems at home. I, I lost my job the other day and I've... I don't care. Off to prison with you, mate. People hear about it and drag that servant before the king. You worthless, useless fella. I forgave you millions. You won't forgive this fella. He's hundred bucks. Jesus is wanting to say, have you thought about how much God's forgiven you? If you think about the huge amount that God's forgiven you, what about that little detail of someone who's done something wrong by you? Learn to forgive. If this is going to be a church that grows, it's going to need to have forgiveness. And I'm not speaking about this church, I'm talking about every church. Same as I would talk about every marriage. It just needs to be central to what Paul talks about. Paul continues over all these things put on love which binds them all together. As Christians, we really need to learn to love and to be seen for our love. <coughs> also, back last century, I um, came across a book that changed me. I don't know if any of you remember Francis Schaeffer. Anyone heard the name Francis? He's not exactly an easy read, is he? He's quite a heavy, difficult read. But he wrote one little tiny book, a little short one, called The Mark of a Christian. It became the ending of another book, but it was then published as a separate one. And in that short book, Francis Schaeffer said something that 
really is stuck with me ever since. And he talked about the only two times in the Gospels that Jesus says that people can tell you are a Christian. And do you know what they are? In this one called the mark of a Christian, there's two occasions. Both of them are in John's Gospel. And the first one is this one. You can probably sing it. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you want the people out there in the world to know that you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ and one of his disciples, it's not going to be because you carry your Bible around and are reading your Bible, you're heading your Bible and reading it all the time. It's not going to be because you wear nice clothes and you go to church on a Sunday and you do all the right things and you're very involved. That's not going to be how they know that you're Christians. It's going to be because of your love. He was one of the early Roman emperors who, who had to chastise all the other people because he commented, do you know what these Christians do? They're the ones that care for the poor and the sick and the needy and all the rest. The rest of you guys don't. They become known, those early Christians become known even to the emperor because of their love. The other verse is found at the end of Jesus' prayer. Jesus has a prayer in, in, in John chapter 17. It's a beauty. Starts out by him praying for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and finally he prays for us. And I mean that literally. Listen, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking about the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe me through this message. That's you and I. That, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. May they be one so that the world may believe that you, God, sent me, Jesus. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may, there may be complete unity. Unity is about that love, that forgiveness, that working together. That's how, Jesus says, the world will know that God sent Jesus into the world, that, that we are Christians. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even, though, even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer for you and I. That's what love's about. Jesus says that the world may believe that you've sent me. Unity. Love. That's the key to the world out there knowing that we're truly Christians. We're going to have an impact on the world. It starts with love. Love that starts in here. Can't stand the other people in this church, but I really want to become a loving church and reach out to love out there. Sorry, that doesn't hold, doesn't work. But love starts with love in here. Remember, love is different. That doesn't, love doesn't mean to say you're going to become best buddies and best friends of every person in the church. You can't do that. You can't have 50 close friends. You just, 
physically doesn't happen. You're going to love people a different way. But there needs to be that love, evident. You know the love I mean in different degrees in the way that love hopes. You won't convince people about God by your arguments, your great arguments. You won't convince people by proving them wrong. You won't convince them by calling them sinners or putting up barriers or or telling them that God love isn't enough. Demonstrating a love, just telling about it is not it. Demonstrating love through our love is what is more important. If you really want to act this community, it'll happen as love is demonstrated. As Christians, are more often concerned about dotting our I's and crossing our T's. This is not a call for compromise, by the way. I'm not saying we should forget the truth, love each other at the expense of the truth. No. They're inseparable. They go together. It's a call to love because so often it's missing in, ch- in church. It's not just a word, it's a deed. And that'll include finding out, learning to love those who are difficult. Love. Why should we love? Because God loved you. Did you deserve God's love? Did you work hard to earn God's love? Did you do anything to get God's love? No, you didn't. I didn't, didn't deserve it, but he loved me, still loves me, despite my failings still. He still loves you, despite the number of times you've probably boo-booed. And he wants us to reciprocate by loving him and loving one another. May this church and every church become beacons of God's love, that wonderful message that he loves us as the world experiences that love. Let's pray. Lord our God, we can't help but start our prayer by just thanking you for your love for us. We didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it. But you still love us unconditionally. You pour your love out upon us. Help us, Lord, as we seek to put off those things that destroy our lives and to put on the new clothes, to put on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Help us to bear one another. Help us to forgive one another. Help us most of all to love as you would have us love. For we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.